All right. I have 11 pages of notes. If I figure that out right, my math is usually really bad. That's about, what, five minutes a page, right? Should get me in time. Uh, those that have better math than me looking at me going, I don't think you're right, Brian. <laughs> I wrote really big notes, so that should be good. We're going to be in First Peter, and we're continuing on in chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. And I'm just going to, by way of introduction here, tell you my summary ahead of time. Instead of teaching and then summarizing, we'll tell you my summary. An understanding of the assurance of our salvation results in a mind prepared for service to God and a life defined by holiness. So now we can break up and just go discuss, because that's pretty well what I'm going to get at through this whole thing. Um, Peter's here spent these first 12 verses, and we'll get into this more uh, fully, of setting up the glorious gospel for the believers and your assurance of salvation, helping you know that you've been born again to a living hope is the way he puts it. And then he goes into this section in verse 13 of what does that mean to the believer? How does that work out in the life of the believer? And as I was studying through this and thinking about it, I've thought a lot about um, this concept a lot of times when we're sharing the gospel or when we're presenting the gospel. Often we're so worried about people rejecting the gospel that we don't give the hard truths of the gospel. We don't give the law. We don't, we don't show them their need for a savior. And that, all that does is that produces false converts. It produces people that say, that's a great idea. I want to be a part of that. But they don't really know why they need to be saved. And so they kind of, as uh, I like Ray Comfort has, you know, a lot of really great training on evangelism. He says, it's like they put a parachute on and they're on an airplane and they've got it on, but the, the, the trip is going really well. And they start to think, yeah, I, I'm kind of a fool or I'm, this is uncomfortable. And they, they start to get frustrated in, their, in having this parachute, like putting on Christianity. False converts do the same way. You know, if you present the gospel without showing their need for a savior, it starts to create this discontentment. It creates false converts, and ultimately false converts fall away, right? It doesn't produce good fruit. And so in in verse 13, he starts to tell us what a proper understanding of the gospel does. It produces good fruit in the life of the believer, the law sets the stage for the gospel, kind of like in Romans. The whole first part of Romans, we get up to Romans chapter 12, and that's how he shows what does the, the, the gospel, what does it produce in a person. The first part of that is this condemnation. Then he shows justification. He shows the outworking of that in Romans. When we're presenting the gospel, when we're thinking about the gospel, we have to start with our need for a Savior. And then that produces holy living if we understand that right. So I, that's a kind of a side note to where we're getting at. It's not really in here. It's more of an understanding of if we come to this, uh, this call to be holy and it's just a work of ourself thinking like, um, you know, Jesus loves me and we don't really have an understanding of what we've been saved from, it'll just produce legalism. It'll produce frustration. It won't produce holy living. So let's get into here and see what a true understanding 
of our salvation and what we've been rescued from and this living hope, what it produces in us. In verse 13, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action in being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your, throughout the time of your exile. So verse 13 here, it transitions in the letter begins with the word, therefore. So, if you're teaching a Bible study and you see that word, what's the question you ask? What is it? Therefore. So we ask ourselves, what are we going? Why is this here? What is this therefore? It's a calling for a response from a previous truth that he's just taught. And in this instance, Peter's telling the believers that in light of what has just been taught, you are to set your hope fully. If you read that, it says, therefore, and then there's a comma. It says, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded. It's kind of an inset here. The focus is, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we, we are being taught to set our hope fully. So the questions that you have here when you read that is this. At least my two questions were, what has just been taught? What's this there for? And what is this hope that we are to set it on? What are we to set our hope full on? And it's pretty obvious right there what we are to set it on. We are to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who has or what has been taught? In the first 12 verses of this chapter, Peter has given many foundational truths about the salvation of the people of God. In these passages... Peter references the doctrine of election, the believer's pilgrimage in this world, the foreknowledge of God in election, the power of God in salvation. Salvation is a finished work of Christ, the preservation of the saints, salvation or uh, sanctification in salvation, the hope of the believer, and the divine mystery and glory of salvation. I missed a couple Sundays that we've been going through Sunday school, but now looking back and seeing some of these things that is revealed in those first 12 verses, I want to go back and listen to them because just thinking about that, there were some amazing, encouraging truths that have already been taught in these first 12 verses. Just, just some of those things. The power of God in salvation. This one, the finished work of, of salvation, the finished work of Christ and the preservation of the saints the hope of the believer, and the divine mystery and glory of salvation. Those are all just amazing things, and we've just learned all those. So Peter ensures that the believer understands that salvation is a glorious work of God in the life of every believer who can rest assured that having been saved, they will be kept by their Savior until the day that they see him face to face. It's a really long statement. I'm going to read it again. Peter ensures that the believer understands that salvation is a glorious work of God in the life of every believer who can rest assured that having been saved, they will be kept by their Savior until the day they see him face to face. So I said that kind of, somebody that's better in English than me can tell me, I think 
third person, whatever it is. Put that in first person, you. He's, he's telling you, if you think through the first 12 verses, he's telling you, you can rest assured in this, that you are going to be saved and kept by Christ until the day that you see him face to face. It's an encouragement to us. And that's where we're at when we move into verse 13. This therefore is you as believers have a salvation that is based on the power of God. It is produced by the power of God, it is kept by God, and is guaranteed to you until you see him face to face. That's where you're at. That's the position that you have. Therefore, being convinced of the great living hope that we have been born into, Peter urges the believers to set the hope fully. Or as NASB says, to fix your hope or to adhere. Peter is telling the believers to secure your hope. This is a voluntary action the believer is commanded to do. Therefore, because of all this, in light of your salvation and your understanding of salvation, therefore, do this thing. What are we to do? We're to set, fix, or secure our hope. We're to do this thing. It takes mental activity on our part. This is what Peter brings out in the next statement, which we're going to go to momentarily in the middle. But this is a mental exercise by the believer to say, here are the truths about salvation. Now I need to fix my hope on something. On what? So begins the transition from this. I've heard it said before, and I love it. So I'm, I just, I've stole this statement, and I use it often. From orthodoxy to orthopraxy. What you know affects what you believe, or what you do, right? What you know and you believe affects what you do. So he's transitioning from orthodoxy, salvation, and what it means and how it applies to the believer, to orthopraxy. How does it work out in the life of the believer? In light of their salvation, which has been secured by God, we are to voluntarily set, fix, or secure our hope or confidence fully, completely, on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's telling you to do. Therefore, because of this orthodoxy, what you've been taught, what you know, now you are to voluntarily. This is an action that you do, okay? It's not just done to you, or it doesn't just magically happen. This takes effort on the believer's part to set your, set your hope fully. You study this, you know it. Now do this. Uh, Bill says it this way. Talk to yourself. I think that's the way he puts it, or very loosely. Shari would know, did I get that right? Something about, like, preach to yourself, talk. It's a great way to put it. Do this thing. Talk to yourself. Fix and secure your hope or confidence fully and completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a grace. This is a uh, Spurgeon quote, so it must be good, right? There's a grace that was given at the first appearing of Jesus Christ, but there's a higher grace that is to be brought to you when Christ shall come a second time, right? When you're saved, when, when Christ appeared, he brought salvation, right? And we know that the, the glorification, according to Romans, is, a, is looked at as in something that has already happened, but yet we're still in this depraved world, aren't we? We know that the victory of Christ is sure and true, but we're still dealing with him. I was telling Mark when we we're out in Kansas City, the, or Wichita, the local Kansas City satanic grotto showed up and tried to cause all kinds of problems. 
and they just harassed people and they actually hit one guy. I mean, we're still dealing with Satan and his minions in this world, right? So there's a grace that appeared with Christ. But as he said, there's, there's a higher grace. There's a final victory, a final elimination of all sin and depravity when Christ comes again to redeem the elect. The grace that will deal the final victorious blow to sin once and for all and perfect the body of Christ of which every saint is a member of. This return of Christ is a great and glorious day for the saints of God. The best is yet to come. And, and I say that the best is yet to come, not like that's ah, miserable and we just kind of hang on until we get there. No, we know that we are to fix this hope and we are to enjoy our salvation, but we also look forward to a great and glorious day. The best is yet to come. What a day that will be. I think somebody wrote a hymn about that. Ponder that for just a moment. Pause and think on that glorious event. Jesus is coming someday for his bride. And on that day, his grace will fulfill its final victory and deliver us to eternal glory with him. Think about that. Stop in the midst of chaos and difficulties and hardships and trials and all the things you're going through and think, there is coming a day. There's a day when his grace will fulfill its final victory and deliver us to eternal glory with him. Fix your hope on that day. There are those that say the imminent return of Christ keeps believers from being productive in this life. I've heard that. I've heard that accusation. I don't know if anybody else has, but I have. If you, you have this belief, this imminent return, you're just going to be standing around waiting for him. And we don't do that, right? We, we know he's coming. It says that they spend too much time looking to heaven for their Savior. I contend that it spurs us on to love and good works. It, remind us, it reminds us when times are hard and we are discouraged, it reminds us to press on. There's a day coming when his full grace will be revealed and our enemy will see his final defeat. That's encouragement to me to get busy, to get to work, to, to serve the Lord. He's coming and he's going to wipe it all out. So no matter what I have to deal with today or tomorrow, whatever comes my way tomorrow, I can find encouragement and press on. I don't just have to hide out in a cave. Just, oh, I don't, don't know what's going to happen. I can be encouraged and press on and serve the Lord. So in the middle of this, he says, therefore, do something. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully. Peter inserts a practical application in his command to fix our hope on the grace that will be brought to us. He instructs us to prepare our minds for action. You know, when you, this verse, in my mind, doesn't say that. In my version, it says, prepare your your mind for action. I think about the way I originally heard the verse where it starts to gird up the loins of your mind, right? And King James puts it that way. There's, there's times the King James language I really love. It's a better picture. I think the, the picture is better in the King James. The practical language is better in the ESV. That's my humble opinion, and it's probably not worth much. But, but when I like the, 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 the picture you see of a person girding up their, their loins, provides us with a picture of what Peter is telling us to do. The SV says, prepare your minds for service, which is a good rendering of what we are to actually do. 
The thought here is of a man or a woman who is securing their tunic to prepare for action. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard this, but I'm going to talk about it anyways, is, is uh, the dress of people in that time period. Kind of, what is he talking about when he says to gird up the loins of your mind? Uh, people would wear tuni- tunics in this time period, both men and women. They were large pieces of cloth. They dripped or draped over their bodies, and they were hanging loose. If they were home or relaxing, kind of laying around, they would let them hang freely where these loose ends were just flowing around, right? But when they were ready to begin their day, to go to work, take on a project, or head out to the city, or uh, even to go to work around their home or their field, or I even pictured a mom. I, w- I was going through this and saw Kelly chasing kids through the house, and even a mom just getting ready to go chase her kids around the house. They would take a piece of leather or rope or cloth, and they would secure their tunic around their waist, right? It'd be like a belt or a girdle. That's where you get girding. That way they would kept it tight to keep it from moving and flowing and getting in the way. Or if they were preparing for a really rigorous activity like running or a guy going into battle, they would take the corners of it, pull it up, and tie it into their belt and almost make like a pair of pants out of it. They would secure them under their girdle. In this way, all the loose ends of the tunic were tucked in. It would not hinder their efforts. So as a man or a woman would secure and tie up the loose ends of the tunic to prepare for action, we are to secure and tie up the loose ends of our minds to prepare for action. That's why I like the King James rendering as far as a picture. You see the man tying it up, but then you think, well, what's, how does that apply? Well, the ESV says, prepare your minds for action. What he's saying is, we need to do something. We need to secure our minds, tie up the loose ends of our minds, prepare them for activity, for the Lord. Exodus 12, 11 is talking about girding up your loins. It says, in this manner you shall eat it. When it's talking to the, about the uh, preparing for the, fast, the Passover. You shall eat this with your belt fastened, or your loins girt about your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. When the Lord gives instruction to them regarding the Passover, he tells them to eat the meal with your belt fastened or your loins girded. They're about to go on the move. They're about to be delivered from bondage. The Lord tells them to gird up their loins to prepare for action. In uh, 2 Kings 4.29, Elisha is commanding Gehazi to gird up his loins and go to the Shulamite's son. He's preparing to do something. He says, gird up your loins and go do this thing. In Luke 12.35, Jesus says, let your loins be girt about and your lights burning. He says, stay dressed for action. The purpose of preparing our minds here is for action. How many Christians and I say this knowing that I've done it. How many Christians fill their heads with knowledge that serves really no redeeming purpose but just to impress other believers or to battle non-believers in debate? They just say, I've learned a lot. I've filled my head full of knowledge of God and full of the Bible. And man, I I can dissect God's word with the best of them. And I've I've read 52 books in the last six months. And of all these deep theologians, I know the reformers perfectly. Calvin's Institutes is laying on the side of my bed, and I read it every night. I know all this stuff. 
but the goal is just to impress others with what I know or to prepare me to go out and just to beat up on lost people and beat them into baits. I, I got you, didn't I? I? I took you down. We have to prepare our, mi- our minds for action. Our learning needs to produce doing and serving God, not just, not just to puff up and be full of knowledge. We definitely want to prepare our minds. We want to know what God says about things. We want to know his word. But the purpose of knowing God's word is not just to be smart. The purpose of knowing God's word is to be prepared to be used for his service, to prepare ourselves for action. But there's other people that do this. Those are the people that are just filling their minds full of knowledge. Others don't have to worry about spending too much time learning without doing because they don't do either. They allow their minds to just wander to and fro, not putting any real thought into the world in which they live or the God which they claim to serve. They're carried away by every wind of doctrine, unable to discern which way they should go. There's no filter in what they allow to come into their minds or their lives. They're just going about the life without any real mental effort at all. They're not engaging their minds in the word of the Lord, in the world around them. They're just flip on the TV, whatever comes in, comes in. Turn on the radio, whatever comes in. You know, maybe I'll pick up the word. They'll sit in church and just, man, that window is dirty. You know, they're just not engaged at all in anything. And I, I say these both as preparing this, just beating myself up, because there's times I've done both. I've went and studied things just because I knew I was going to interact with a person that disagreed with me, and I got to be able to beat them in this this uh, debate we're about to have. You know, I, I've done that. There's also been times where I've just been tired, and, and lazy is probably a way better word to use than tired, and just didn't even engage my mind at all. Just went through periods of just you know whatever. Neither one are good. As I've said often. Christianity is a thinking man's game. We need to engage our minds. Neither of these scenarios are good. We are to prepare our minds for action. We are to actively engage our minds through prayer, study of the word of God, and fellowship with the saints to shed the sinful and unproductive thoughts of our minds, which hinder our activity for the Lord. We desire to be used by God to make his name great in all the earth. That's what we desire as Christians, don't we? We get saved. We get chosen by God out of this world. We get made new. And then I believe every believer's, true believer's desire is to be prepared to be used by God. And we actively play a role in this. We prepare our minds. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Remember what that says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God enters into our heart and enters into our mind and it prepares us for every good work. The purpose of the study of the Word of God is that we should be able to go and do. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission, right? 
He says, all this power has been given to you to go and make disciples teaching them, right? Teaching them. How are you going to teach if you don't know? How are you going to go and do if you don't know? We prepare our minds. We, we, we get rid of the, the flack. The, we, we block out all the negative, and we prepare our minds to be used by God through his word. Look at Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. I'm going to turn there if you would like to join me. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and, for, and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I've often heard this passage taught is almost a passage of idleness. It's like, you just got to get prepared and stand firm. Just stand. A lot of people focus on the standing part of this passage. But I think this is a preparation for action when you're looking at this. Now, I've heard it taught that that way as well. But I've often heard people, just it's, it's about just, being ready, just being ready to go. No, this is a preparing to be ready and then to go. There's a lot of action words in there. If we, if we prepare and never do, what was the point of the preparation? Part of the preparation of our mind, part of the study of God's word and prayer and fellowship, part of this preparation is to do. James 2.26, For as the part of the body from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. I was thinking about this Sunday school lesson, and I thought Martin Luther would probably have hated this Sunday school lesson. I think I've heard it said before that he wanted to rip James out of the Bible, um, so focused on just the grace of the Lord and, again, being set free from all those works. He was fearful of falling back into that salvation by works, and that's not what I'm teaching here. We're not saying that you have to do this stuff to be made right with God. Remember, what was the foundation? What was the foundation for going into verse 13? It was an understanding of our salvation produces these works. We're not doing these things. None of this stuff I'm telling you should produce in you a desire to sit there and say, man, I got to do better because if I'm a Christian and I really want God to be pleased with me, I've got to improve my life. I got to do better. Then you're, you're missing it. What we're saying here is in light of what has been done, Prepare your minds for action. I was speaking with a friend this past week who's a full-time street preacher and a teacher, and he often, he's often asked to come to churches to help prepare people for evangelism. Uh, one particular church contacted him and asked him to come teach a short course on evangelism just recently. And the pastor was sh sharing with him, said, 
we've went through all these training courses in the past, Faith Evangelism, The Way of the Master, Evangelism Explosion, and all these others. Man, we went through all of these courses. We really know it well, and we'd like you to come teach another one. A friend said he thought about it for a second, and he told the pastor, he said, you know, maybe another evangelism program is not what you need. Maybe as a pastor, you just need to teach a sermon series on love and compassion for the lost. It sounds like they're prepared, but there's no action taking place. Why is that? Maybe there's no love for the lost in there. I don't know what it is, but you see, they had filled their minds with knowledge, but they hadn't prepared their minds for action. If they'd prepared them, they'd filled them with knowledge, they know, and I could, I could stand up in front and role play evangelism all day long and do a great job of it, but is it producing anything? Is there any action produced from it? We are to prepare our minds for action. I hope you have got that by now. Philippians 4.8 is a great verse for understanding how do we accomplish this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We gird up, but we prepare our minds through meditation on the word of God. Meditation is the practice, this is uh, J.I. Packer said, meditation is the practice of turning each truth we learn about God into matter for reflection before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. We meditate on his word. I know as my children are growing up, you know, um, and those of you that have children that are older can remember going through this process. When they're young, you just want them to read God's word, study God's word, just hear it, memorize it, right? And then they get to a point when you start to teach them how to sit and think about God's word, to apply God's word, to meditate on it, to say, okay, I've read this chapter. Now, as I've heard it said before, I'm going to interrogate this passage. I'm going to meditate on it and say, well, what does it mean? What's it teaching? What can I learn from it? We want to, uh, we want to study God's word and meditate on it so that we can then be prepared to serve the Lord. So I added to the back of his quote, probably not really good to go adding to somebody like J.I. Packer, but I'm going to do it anyways. I say meditation is the practice of turning each truth we learn about God into matter for reflection before God, leading to prayer and praise to God, producing service to God. I think that's what meditation does. One last thought about preparing our minds for action. When thinking about this, we often focus on the areas of entertainment, social media, negative influence from the culture and similar things. When we think about these negative things, we've got to prepare our minds and get this stuff out. We often forget that our mind is a physical organ in our body, just like our heart and our lungs. Proper nutrition, healthy living is a part of preparing our minds. This is a real basic addition here. When we lose sleep, eat unhealthy, go without regular exercise, our brain suffers. It's an organ in your body. Part of preparing our minds involves physically caring for it just as we do the rest of our body. One way to do this is found in the very next part. It says what? And being sober-minded. Are we preparing our mind? As we're preparing our minds for action, we guard them from intoxicating influences. The word here is nepho, which means figuratively of being free from every form of mental and spiritual intoxication. 
John MacArthur speaking on the passage states, being sober-minded literally means not to become intoxicated, which is to lose control of thought and action. It's more than just abstaining from drugs and alcohol. In fact, we may never touch a drop of alcohol or ingest the slightest drug our entire life and yet not live sober-minded. If we allow our minds to wander aimlessly through the world, entertaining any whim which comes our way, we're not living sober-minded. We're allowing our minds to be intoxicated by the trappings of the world. Believers do not allow their fleshly temptations to lead them around. They discipline their body and their mind. And that goes from what you put into your body physically, what you allow into your brain spiritually. He's talking about the fruit of a disciplined life in 2 Peter chapter 1. Go over there real quick with me. This is... Peter in 2 Peter in chapter 1. And he gives us two important truths related to being sober-minded. Verses 1 to 8. Peter, a servant of the apostle Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and great, very great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he tells us that a disciplined life is a fruitful life. The believer does not wander through life aimlessly. We live a life of discipline, both mentally and physically. In verse 3, we see how it's accomplished. How is it accomplished? By his divine power. It's by the, the power of God and his word by which we're able to live out this life. He's about to go into talking about holy living, being holy. That should make us say impossible, right? It's by his divine power that we can serve God. None of these things if you're sitting in church and you're challenged to do something, you're challenged to live up to a certain standard that God has called you to be, the first thing you should say is, man, I can't do this. And then rely on God to do it. We prepare our minds by the great truths of God's word and carefully considering everything in our lives which affects our minds. We pull in our careless thinking and worthless affections. We prepare our minds for action. We, there's another quote I found that was anonymous, but I thought it applied well. We who are the redeemed are not here to party with the world. The world hates us. We're not here to try to fit in or conform, but are here for godly action that brings glory to our Father who is in heaven. Another reason for being sober-minded is found later in the book in chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. This is in 1 Peter. It says, be sober-minded because the enemy is seeking someone to devour. Look at chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. As a believer, we cannot let our guard down even for a moment. We may be secure in our salvation, but we are still living this side of glorification. We can still be used by the enemy to shame the name of our Lord and Savior and to lead others astray. He may not be able to completely destroy us, but he can use us to cause destruction. On our trip last week, I was talking to a friend from, that I had known from years ago, and we had a mutual friend, and I shared something our mutual friend had told me. And I wasn't thinking, it was one of these where I was just, again, I wasn't engaging my mind. I was sharing that with them, I was saying a couple things about it, and it, it used his name. It was like, so-and-so told me this, and blah, 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 I went on talking. And I thought, you know, by using his name, and we both were mutual friends, I added some validity to this story. I'm driving home really late where everybody was sleeping and leaving me with, a, with my thoughts. And it dawned on me, I didn't need to include his name in that discussion. ultimately it was gossip is what it was I didn't need to do that so I had to call my friend up and be like yeah I was out so and so and I threw your name in the middle of a conversation ultimately it was God I just had to ask him for forgiveness he would have never known right but still because I wasn't engaging my mind in that moment because I wasn't living sober minded and I let my guard down the enemy used me to possibly so discord amongst a couple people. Praise the Lord that was amongst brothers and once you talk to them and every, oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. We're good, right? But we have to be careful as believers. The devil can get in and he's prowling around. He wants to cause problems and we need to be aware. We need to be aware in, in the fellowship. Somebody comes up to you and be like, I cannot believe, John, did you hear what the elders are doing? What should we do? Engage our mind and say, like, no, I didn't, and I don't care. <laughs> or maybe you should say, have you went and talked to them, right? Things like that. We've got to engage our minds all the time. We've got to be careful. He wants to cause destruction. So what do we have so far? Not even close. Because of the marvelous salvation that has been presented in verses 1 to 12, we have been encouraged to prepare our minds for action and live soberly in this present time, fixing our hope fully on the, on the grace that will be revealed at the re- revelation of Jesus Christ. So I hope I spent way too much time making you very clear that as Christians, in light of our salvation, we should prepare our minds for action, for service to God. Be involved. Do not be a pew warmer. And in verse 14, he moves on to saying that we are to be obedient children. Or another way it can be said, in so much as you are obedient children. In this section, what he's saying is Peter's describing who we are. It's another great truth that's going to produce fruit in our lives. Who are you? You are a believer, born again, redeemed by Jesus Christ, by his blood. Who are you? You're an obedient child. Uh, Bob, I believe, spoke on uh, adoption a while back. Such a beautiful thought. We've been brought into his family. A child of God is an obedient child as opposed to a child of wrath. 
which we were at, at one time. A fact which Peter points out to us is he reminds us of our former ignorance. The believer as an obedient child adopted by the true and living God is not to be taking on the appearance of the wicked world around them, out of which we have been saved. I often hear Christians speak in a negative way about other believers who are in their mind socially awkward. Some feel it's even a good thing to be a Christian and yet fit in in the world. They, they fit in well in the world. They're not weird. Is this really something we should strive for as a Christian, to fit in and, and look like the world? Christians don't need to be unduly odd or difficult to get along with, but we most definitely should look different and behave different from the world around us. We've been promised by God to be transformed from our old sinful selves into the image of his son. This is a great rubric, rubric for evaluating our walk with the Lord. Does my life resemble that of an obedient child of the Lord or that of a child of the world? This is not meant to be discouraging thought, but perhaps a sobering one. The enemy is the one who would love to discourage you and leave you defeated following an examination of your life. The Lord desires you to be convicted, repent, and continue to be transformed by his great mercy. Think about Psalm 32 of David. When you realize you've done wrong, what do you do? You go to God, you repent, and he restores you. First John is a picture of the Lord's forgiveness through confession. Verse 7 and 9 in chapter 1 of First John. Bob taught on that not too long ago. We, we, you confess, and he's faithful and just to forgive you, right? When you hear a hard teaching, you hear something, and you evaluate your life, and you think, man, I'm not living up to it. We can get discouraged. The enemy wants to beat you up and be like, see, you, you, you messed up again. You're not good enough. You're not, you're not doing enough. And the, God wants us to say, okay, maybe there is an area needed for growth. Repent. Repentance is a beautiful word. Confess and allow God to restore you. That's a beautiful thing. In verse 15, he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all you do. We are called by God. That's the word kaleo. It's a verb meaning to call loud in order that the hearer may come or go somewhere as a shepherd calls his flock. It also means to call somebody with a specific purpose. The act of calling someone that he may hear, come and do that which is incumbent upon him. We have been called by our Father with a purpose. It's a holy calling with a holy purpose. 2 Timothy and 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 and 1 Peter 2.9 both say that we've been called to give glory to God through the gospel by living in it, finding peace through it, and proclaiming salvation by it. That's what we've been called to do. He who called you is holy. He has also called you to a holy calling. So what is holiness? Well, one of my favorite books on this is uh, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. It's a wonderful book. Highly encourage you to check it out if you've never read that book. But he says, holiness is the characteristic of God's nature that is at the very core of his being. God is not defined by some standard of holiness. Holiness is defined by God. And he desires his children to be holy. You know, when we think about holiness, it's not like, okay, here's holiness and God measures up the holiness. No, when we say holiness, it's a standard that who God is. It's by his very nature. 
uh, Tozer writes on this saying, we Christians must stop apologizing for our moral position and start making our voices heard. Exposing sin as the enemy of the human race and setting forth righteousness or holiness and true holiness as the only worthy pursuits of moral beings. You know, so often we, we, uh, we, we don't want to offend by calling on the world to be holy and righteous. But God is holy and righteous, and that's what he demands. We need to tell people that that's what he demands in this world so that he can then, through his Holy Spirit, crush them, break them, humble them, and then bring them to himself if he so desires. Remember how Peter began this transition in verse 15, calling us to prepare our minds. Here's one of the actions we can take, another one. We can be holy in an unholy world. We cannot be conformed. We cannot apologize for our moral platform, not back down from the truth of God's word. Hold his name high, in high esteem, in a wicked and adulterous generation. Be holy even as I am holy. It's more than simply abstaining from evil or doing good. This is being transformed into the very image of our Savior. In fact, it is an utterly impossible task. That is the way with God. He calls us to impossible tasks, revealing our need for him, and then grants us power to fulfill those commands. God has called us to holiness. We need to be holy in this wicked world. Stand out like we're called lights in this dark world, aren't we? Let your light shine, right? Let your good works so that people would see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. Live holy, be holy, actively in this world. We should, the world around us should feel conviction by how we live and what we say and what we do. The church should be an, an avenue of not only grace and mercy to those that repent and come to him, but it should also be an avenue of conviction on the world who does not live holy, who live unrighteous. The Bible is clear on the matter of personal holiness. It's extremely important to the Lord, the Lord that his children live holy in this present world. And because we are his children, he will also give us the power to accomplish this task. Be holy as obedient children who you are, as your father is holy. Simply put, be like your father. He has adopted you. He has brought you into his family. Be like him. And in verse 17, he says this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. I really like this where it says the if in this statement, it's not a hypothesis, but a fulfilled condition. And what that means is this. It's not a statement of possibility, but one of a secure occasion. It's assumed that a child of God, as a child of God, you will call on him. Another one, you know, a lot of assumptions in this, in this passage here, we were assumed to be uh, obedient children, right? Here we're assumed that, that if, if you call, it says when, or. It's a, it's a guarantee. A child of God, an obedient child of God, will call on their father. Peter's assumption of every believer is that they pray to their father. Our father in heaven is transcendent. He's holy. He's above all things and over all things. He's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Why? 
having been granted access to him, would a believer not pray to him? Why would we not pray to him? This, for me, is a very convicting question. How often have I had a deep, productive prayer life over the time of my life as a Christian? I think about that. And, and, and in light of that last statement of God's transcendent omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, his power, his sovereign reign, I all too often do not go to him and just talk to him way too often. I, 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 I like to say when we're discussing with people the topic of abortion, I say, you don't believe it's child murder. I tell them that all the time. People say, how do you know that? I'm pro-life. I want to save babies. I'm like, no, you don't. Says, by your actions, you're proving you don't because you're willing to pass laws that regulate how a baby is murdered. You don't really care about it. You don't believe it's murder. You say it is, but you don't. In the same way, when it comes to my prayer, I may say that I believe my Father in Heaven is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, he's transcendent, he's... but then I sit and I worry about things in my life that are going on without taking them to him in prayer. My actions are showing I don't believe what I'm saying. My orthopraxy is not lining up with my orthodoxy. And that's never a good thing in the Christian life. We need to align. I would venture to say that many of us act as if our Father in Heaven is not what the Bible says He is when it comes to our prayer life. He desires us to pray to Him. He desires to hear from His children. Hebrews 4.16 says we can confidently draw near to His throne of grace. This is astounding that our Creator and the Sustainer of the universe would grant me access into His presence. If that doesn't astound you, go read that book I was telling you about the holiness of God. Think about who he is. Go read the Bible and just look at every passage that talks about his holiness, his greatness, his majesty, and then go read in, uh, where it says he allows you access into his presence. Peter ends this section with a command to conduct, conduct yourselves in fear or reverence during your time in exile. The motivation for this conduct is the character and nature of God. He is a savior, but he's also a righteous judge. Isaiah 4, 45, 21. It's a great two passages to share the gospel with somebody. Isaiah 45, 21 says God is a just God and a savior. Acts 20, 21 says that we testify repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. God is a just God, a perfect and righteous judge. He's also a savior. And because of that, we repent towards him and put our faith in Jesus Christ. God has granted us salvation as a free gift, but this does not mean we then get to go out and live our time here any way we please. He has just called us to live holy, even as he is holy. So now we are to conduct ourselves with fear because our Father will not allow us to live in sin. He will discipline those he loves and he will do it without any bias. You're not going to get by because you just taught a Sunday school class to then that day go and yell at your wife. Don't plan on doing that. So, you know. But he's not going to say, oh, you taught Sunday school. Good job. So now you're allowed one free yell at your wife. Right? He's, 
just and perfect. He judges everybody from big to small, wise to not so wise. Everybody the same, without bias. If we are, if we are indeed need of discipline, it doesn't matter to God how many good things we've done or what our reason is for our actions. I can tell you that I've tried to justify sin before. It does not work. He will judge impartially to our deeds. I will end this with another quote by John MacArthur. True love and worship to God are marked by understanding that he is the Christian's loving, gracious, and just generous father, but also his holy disciplining judge. How believers conduct themselves before his omniscience, his omniscient presence matters in both time and eternity. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've got a couple verses and then we'll wrap up. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct to you as believers. For you know how, like the Father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct to you, to you believers. We are exhorted in the scriptures to walk holy before God because he is good because he is our father and because he has called us into his kingdom he has granted us salvation he has guaranteed our salvation and he calls us to walk holy before him he calls us to action and again I already referenced this but go to Romans chapter 12 it's a great summary of what Peter is teaching the believers in this portion Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to... Study the word of God, understand our salvation, prepare our minds for service, and live holy in this world. Let's see if I can find page one because I want to reread my summary and then we'll finish up here. Good thing I numbered my pages because they're all a mess right now. Understanding, an understanding of the assurance of our salvation results in a mind prepared for service to God and a life defined by holiness. As obedient children, we live holy in this world. 